So I want you to open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 1 because that's really a great segue into the message we have for us this morning, which I've entitled for you, Praying Like Paul, Praying Like the Apostle Paul. Often we do ask someone to pray for us. Can you pray for me? And, and we have some specific kinds of requests that we enumerate for them, and other times we don't. And sometimes we just, someone's face or name kind of comes into our mind and, and we are moved to pray for that person. Sometimes we pray for people we don't even know very well. And so in all of those situations, the The text before us this morning has something very, very important to say. Learning to pray is like learning to talk. You begin with sort of baby steps, and and, uh, or maybe I should say baby syllables, or I don't want to mix my metaphors here, but to, to become conversant, to become proficient in speaking is something that requires practice. It requires thought. And praying is really not all that different. There are the simple prayers that one can just simply voice that, that just kind of come up out of the depth of your soul, but there are, there are other prayers that are deeper and richer and, and I might even say um, instructive. The Apostle Paul has that for us here. It's, as you look at Ephesians 1, we have been studying now for weeks and weeks on this great doxology that begins here in verse 3 and runs all the way to verse 14. And, and Paul follows this, this incredible teaching with a prayer. And he could have just said, you know, I'm praying for you. But he doesn't. He does say that he's praying for them, to be sure, but then he goes on and and he tells them what he is praying. And over in chapter 3, you see the same thing again, beginning in verse 14 and running to the end of the chapter. We have another prayer of Paul recorded for us. And again, it's instructive to to note that it it follows the, the, the deep theological realities of Gentile salvation and then the creation of the body of Christ of Jew and Gentile together on equal footing making up the body of Christ and that too leads Paul to pray and in, and in both cases it's important to see and instructive I believe that these prayers follow the deep theological teaching that he has laid out and that the actual prayer he enumerates for them why it's to teach them to pray. It's not just to tell them I'm praying for you, but it's to teach them how to pray. On Sunday mornings, we read the scriptures and then we pray publicly. Some people call it the pastoral prayer or whatever. One of our elders leads us in prayer. And it's important as we come together and and, and you know, one person vocalizing, but the rest of us sort of joining in in that prayer. But it's also instructive. Those times of prayer are put together with thought and purpose. And part of it's instructive. To teach you how to pray. So as we look here 
At this prayer that begins in verse 15 of chapter 1, we can learn something. And what we can learn are about prayer priorities that, that were on the heart of the Apostle Paul. There are actually three of them in the text, verses 15 to 23, the end of the chapter. Three prayer priorities from the Apostle Paul that are given to us here and by which or through which or as we study them, we can become more effective in our own prayer. We can learn something from this that will instruct us in how to pray. It'll make us more effective in our own prayer. The first of those is found in verses 15 and 16. The first prayer priority. And it is thanksgiving. Paul begins this prayer with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for God's saving grace. That's where he begins. He says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. He begins by giving thanksgiving. Paul often begins his prayers this way. Prayers for the church, prayers for believers in the church. A quick skim of the various epistles that he wrote, or his letters that he wrote, you will find early on in those letters an expression of thanksgiving. Paul is acutely aware that any good that has occurred in the life of the church is attributable directly to God. And so Paul is thankful. And there's no difference here. In fact, this doxology that he has, been, that he has laid out for them here in its praiseworthy nature, which Three times he says, right, to the praise of the glory of God's grace, the, the very praiseworthy nature of, of our salvation brought about by the work of Father, Son, and Spirit moves Paul to voice and vocalize his own prayer, his praise to God through prayer. And it's natural. I mean, salvation is always of the Lord. It is a result of the work of the triune God, the sovereign work of the triune God, who plans it, who, who accomplishes it, who guarantees it. Planning it through the Father, accomplishing it through the work of the Son, and guaranteeing it through the work of the Spirit. And so when we reflect on redemption, both in our own lives and in the lives of others, it motivates us, it moves us to thanksgiving. And that's exactly what we find here. Paul says here, verse 15, for this reason. For this reason. What reason? What reason? Well, I think that the general reason, of course, is what he has talked about here in, in verses 3 through 14. The work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. 
But more specifically here within the text, it's a reference back, I believe, to verses 13 and 14 where he is speaking about Gentile inclusion. Right? Where he says, In him you also, you Gentiles, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise or the promised Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. For this reason, for the reason that Gentiles are included in the great work of God, those who were once outside God's covenant, at a distance, cut off from the promise and the blessings. In fact, Paul will, will elaborate all of that in, in verses 11 and following of chapter 2. In light of this reason, in the light of Gentile salvation, for this reason, he says, I don't cease giving thanks for you. Paul says he has heard about their faith, verse 15. He has heard about their faith, right? For this reason, having heard of the faith that exists among you. Some believe that this is proof that the letter itself has not been written to the church at Ephesus. A church where Paul spent a number of years, of course, in its, in its foundation and establishment and growth and so forth. And, and they would point to this and they would say that this is evidence that, that Paul never wrote this letter to the Ephesian church specifically, but that it was a circular letter that arrived at Ephesus in due time. And that's certainly a possibility. But it's not necessarily so. Not necessarily so. You remember at the time Paul wrote this letter, he's under house arrest in Rome. All right, Acts chapter 28, and at the end there in verse 30, it says Paul spent two years in his own rented quarter under house arrest, continuing to minister and preach the gospel of the kingdom to all who would hear in the, in the imperial city. So it's perhaps what Paul is saying is that there, this epistle, which, is, which we call a prison epistle, written during this time, perhaps it's that Paul has heard about the work of the church. After all, he's been gone now for about five years. So maybe it's just as simply that he has heard from Tychicus, who, who is the one who likely delivered the letter, according to chapter 6 here in, in verses 21 and 22, where you, you see there at the end of the letter, Paul says that, but that you might know about my circumstances, how I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, and so forth. So perhaps that Tychicus, having arrived in Rome, giving a report about the, the work in the church there at Ephesus, Paul, having heard about this, this church that he loves so much and has spent so much time with, but it has been gone from for for nearly five years, he is just overjoyed with it. And so he writes to them and includes his thanksgiving. So whether this is evidence of the circular form of the letter or whether this is instead could be understood as just a, an expression of someone who's been gone from a while from a, from a group of people they love so much, in either case, Paul says, having heard, my heart is filled to overflowing. My heart is filled to overflowing for what God has done among you. Notice here where he says, 
And I want you to see the specific connection here between faith in Jesus, verse 15, and love for all the saints. You see it? Paul says, for this reason, for the, for the reason of the Gentile inclusion and the, and the resultant manifestation of their faith in Jesus and their love for all the saints. Paul sees that as, as the evidence that the gospel is real here. That it's taken root. And that's true. True faith in the Lord Jesus Christ manifests itself in an active love, an observable love, for others in the body of Christ. They are inextricably tied together. Faith in Jesus produces love for the people of Jesus. Where you find one, you must of necessity find the other. Jesus himself said in John 13 and verse 35, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. By your love for one another. 1 John 2.10 says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. James tells us in James chapter 2, in verses 14 and following, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet do not give him what is necessary for his body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Listen, love for the Lord Jesus Christ always manifests itself in love for the children of God, for the brothers and sisters, for the followers of Jesus Christ. And true, active love for the brethren is an unmistakable sign of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has heard. He has heard that they believe. He has heard about the deeds of love. His heart is absolutely overwhelmed with joy. The question that arises sometime is, how do I know whether to, to voice thanksgiving to God for the salvation of someone? Or maybe said another way, how do I know whether somebody's saved? Think about family members. Just think about family members. We've got this family member, let's say, and, and um, we think they may be saved, and if that's true, then we should be thankful to God. We should be expressing our thanksgiving to God, but how do I know? Answer? Does their life demonstrate a love for the brethren? Can we, can we observe their faith in their lives? And if we can, then that should move us to thanksgiving. And if we can't, we should continue to pray for their salvation. We should continue to pray for their salvation. But Paul is convinced here. He is absolutely, deeply persuaded 
that these are believers, that, that the great theology he has been talking about of God's sovereign electing love, his, his predestination of their adoption in Christ, of the sealing of the Spirit and all of that, he's convinced it's true because he can observe it in their lives. Now notice he says here, for this reason I too, I too, having heard of your faith, do not cease giving thanks for you. It's not here that, that Paul is joining other people in the thanksgiving to God about the faith. I, I think it's better translated here that I in particular. For this reason, and, and the adverb could easily be translated that way, for this reason I in particular, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Why would Paul, in particular, be so moved to thanksgiving for the salvation among the, the believers there in Ephesus? I think the answer to that is found in Paul's life calling. As he will make very clear here in chapter 3, that it is his life calling to bring the message of salvation to the Gentiles and the theological reality that there is only one church made up of Jew and Gentile. And so when that reality is working itself out, he, he finds in, in it the fulfillment of his life calling. And it makes him profoundly grateful. So grateful, in fact, that he says he does not cease giving thanks for them. Verse 16. Paul doesn't just rip off a prayer, thank you, Lord, for the salvation of the Ephesians, and then move on. He doesn't cease giving thanks for them. What does that look like? How often does it happen? When he says he doesn't cease, is, is Paul saying that from the moment he wakes up till the moment he goes to sleep, his, his life is consumed with just thanking God for the work of the Spirit there in the church at Ephesus? It's got to mean more than that. It, can, it can't be that. Because there's so many other things that he's doing. He's writing other letters. He's preaching the gospel and so forth. So it can't be a, a statement about how he has occupied his time. Instead, I think it's, it's just talking about priority and habit. And that's what makes it instructive for us. When he says he doesn't cease giving thanks to God for them, he is, he is speaking about his regular habit in prayer. And he's saying as he prays, his prayers are, are characterized by thanksgiving to God. It's a, it's a regular element, a regular habit of his. And notice he says as well that he's making mention of them, or making mention of you there. You see it, verse 16. Again, evidence, I think, that he would be familiar with certain individuals and calling them by name. Further 
evidence could be accumulated that this letter is specifically written to a group of believers with which he is familiar. Just thinking about this, this idea of Thanksgiving being a a regular habit, a, a priority that occupies Paul's prayer life, it's got to be instructive for us. Beloved, I don't think we thank God enough. I don't think we spend as much time thanking God as we ought to. In Romans chapter 1, and I won't turn you there, but when Paul talks about those who do not know God, One of the signs, he says there, of those who do not know God is that they fail to thank God. They fail to thank him. Conversely, one who does know God and knows God well is someone whose heart has got to be filled with thanksgiving. So when I I think about us as as a people... I think we ought to be more thankful, and we ought to express that gratitude more regularly. I think about missionary prayer letters. You get a missionary prayer letter, and uh, in it, often they'll, they'll, they'll mention, uh, I just saw one of, of late, and it was talking about a a group of believers there in an in a indigenous church setting in which they have memorized sections of Romans chapter 8. Large sections. And the translation of Romans chapter 8 into the, into the tribal language about doubles the volume of words that we have in the English language. And the thought of memorizing Romans chapter 8 in the English language is a daunting task. Right? At least for me. I know many of you probably already have it done. But that, I was like, I got that letter and I I read that and I I thought about that. And and what what I came away from that thinking is, you know what? That is an evident work of the Spirit of God for which I need to be grateful and express that gratitude to God. Am I thankful for the, for the work of the, of the missionaries there and the Bible translation they're doing and all of that? Yes, I am. But I think if I would have the mind of Christ, which you could say here is the mind of Paul, It ought to move me to thanksgiving to God and and extend it a regular time of thanksgiving because it evidences the work of the Spirit in the lives of these people. I think it's instructive, this priority of thanksgiving in how we think about each other in the church. Sometimes we irritate each other. Would you grant that? 
No, there's one person here, he's never irritated. It's like the guy who says, I never get ulcers, I only give them, I'm a carrier, right? Yeah. We get irritated with each other. But if we were to be refocused in terms of recognizing the, the, the fact that that person sitting next to you, if they're a follower of Christ this morning, that they are a living, breathing example of God's sovereign election, of Christ's atoning sacrifice, of the power of the indwelling Spirit of God who guarantees that redemption until the day of Christ. That sort of changes the way we look at them. Thanksgiving is, a, is like, a, it's like a fire suppressant. It cools the irritation. If we spent more time being thankful for one another, we would spend far less time being irritated with one another. Paul begins with the priority of thanksgiving for God's saving grace. And then he moves to his second priority in verses 17 and following, intercession. Intercession. He, he intercedes on their behalf. He, he makes request of God on their behalf. In his intersection, intercession here in verses 17 through 19, I think could be boiled down to this, that the lights would go on for them. That the lights would go on for them. This section, verses 17 and following, is problematic in the Greek. The grammar and syntax of these verses is difficult and has led to a number of variations in the English translation. There are certainly those places in the New Testament. This is one of them. But what is not difficult or what is not confusing, although the, all the individual pieces, there are differences of opinion. What's, what's not is the general thrust of what Paul is interceding before God on their behalf, what, God, what he is requesting of God on their behalf. And it is simply this, that they would have the heart, the head, and the hands shaped by the truth of God that has just been outlined in verses 3 through 14. You notice that he says that making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. In other words, Paul is not praying that God would grant to them some new and additional spiritual benefit. 
They have everything. They've got it all. And so do you if you're Christ's child this morning. And so do I. There is nothing that God has held back from us. That's the message of verses 3 and following, right? Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has given us everything there is to have, all that we need. So Paul is not praying and asking God to to give them something more than he's already given them. What he is praying and going to pray here is that they would understand the implications of what God has already given them. That the lights would go on for them with regard to their spiritual blessing. And this also is not a a prayer for a one-time event. He's not praying that the lights go on in terms of like a light switch. You know, Lord, will you just, you know, I know they're your children. Can you just turn the light switch on for them? What he is praying is is that the lights will stay lit and grow ever brighter. That there will be a continual discovery and a, and a reacquaintance with all of the blessings that we have in Christ. Throughout the week, you and I have a bad memory. We often forget what God has done for us in Christ. Not that we like forget it in the sense that it's gone completely, you know, you can never remember it anymore. It's, it's more like forgetting your father's birthday. You know what it is, you just can't quickly recall it. Or we doubt the truth of the gospel. In fact, I would suggest that all sin sort of boils itself down to that. We doubt and we forget, and in the moment of doubting and forgetting, we act faithlessly. Another way to think about this is often our prayers are that, that Lord, would you, would you give them grace in this situation? So-and-so is in a hard place. Would you, would you multiply your grace to them? Will you, will you show them grace? Will you give grace to them? If we're not careful when we pray like that, and it's legitimate to pray like that, but we need to be understanding what it is we're actually praying. Grace is not a spiritual pixie dust, and we're not asking God to sprinkle more of it on them. All the grace we will ever receive and ever need has been purchased in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no additional supply or fountainhead or or source of grace. It's all there in Christ and it's all ours in union with Christ. So when we pray and, and think about, oh, oh Lord, so-and-so is in this really hard place, that, you know, the, the, they've 
lost a loved one or whatever it is, please multiply your grace to them. What we are really asking is exactly what Paul is, is speaking of here. We are asking the Lord to, to turn the lights on for them and help them to recognize the reality of what is already theirs in Christ. And that needs to be a regular occurrence in your, my, your life and mine. I need to pray regularly. Father, help me to understand who I am in Christ. You've shown it to me here. Help me to understand it in this circumstance. Notice here that uh, we have the, the we would call it the orthodox approach in prayer. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, that is in the, on the basis of the merit of the Son and in the power of the Spirit. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart Excuse me, I missed it. Verse 17, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in the knowledge of him. In other words, those that have received the spirit, verses 13 and 14, will, will experience the spirit's ministry in knowing all that they have in Christ. Depending on what translation is sitting on your lap here in verse 17, you may see it translated, a spirit of wisdom. The NASB handles it that way. I believe it's the NIV handles it, the the Holy Spirit of wisdom. So some of you are seeing it as a small s spirit. Others of you are seeing it as the large s spirit. So which is it? I don't know. Textually, it could be either. It is what is called anathoris, which means that there is no, um, there's no the. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit in the Greek text. It just says spirit, pneuma. So the NASB has translated it as spirit and the, the idea of the human spirit. That is a disposition towards something. Or it may be that he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Who on the basis of Isaiah 11 and verse 2 is spoken of there as the spirit of wisdom and revelation. problem with that view is that verses 13 and 14 says we've received the Spirit, so why would Paul pray in verse 17 that, that God the Father would give them the Spirit, since he just said he gave them the Spirit? It's also a bit difficult to, if it's human disposition, that, that this... Um, this affinity or, 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 or this, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I, disposition, I'll have to stay with that, is 
of wisdom and of revelation, it's, it's, it's understandable how God could give someone, you know, wisdom, but, but revelation is something that God provides, something that God does. So I'm not sure whether it's the Holy Spirit here or it's speaking about the human spirit, but in either case, we, we kind of end up in the same place. Because if it is the Holy Spirit, what, he is, what Paul's got to be saying here is that, is that God the Father will, will make active in them the ministry of the Spirit, which is that they might understand all that, that uh, He has done for them and that has been revealed to them here through the Word. Kind of gets you to the same place. Wisdom is insight into how things really are. Revelations speaks about God unveiling things that you and I could never know. Certainly election and predestination would be things we could never know unless the Father revealed them to us. So in either case, we've we got to get to the same place. Paul's praying here that the, as, that the Father would grant the work of the Spirit so that you and I would come to understand reality, what the Father has done for us. Further, he says in verse 18 that he prays that the eyes of their heart will be enlightened. We've got a metaphor here. Eyes are, are a gateway for light, right? That's how we see, is that it's through the eyes. And the heart, in, in biblical thought, is the seed of moral and intellectual life. So I think when you put it all together here, what Paul is saying, he says when he prays that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, he's, he's basically saying is he's praying that, that our, our understanding, our thoughts about the world will, will be made clear, we'll, we'll be bright, we'll be able to see the world as it really is. All of which results in the knowledge of God. Again, in the context here of the chapter, he's, he's basically saying is that those things that he has laid out for them about the Father's work on their behalf and what the, what the Son has done and what the Spirit has done is so that they would understand that reality which will result in the knowledge of God. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? The Old Testament speaks of the knowledge of God. It speaks relationally. It speaks relationally. It talks about having a relationship with God because he has made himself known to us. It's a relationship that's characterized by obedience, by gratitude, by, by acknowledgement of God. It, it begins with the fear of the Lord, right? The beginning of knowledge. It's that reverent awe of who God is. So often, when we think about knowing God, we think about categories. We think about intellectual achievements or attainments. But Paul's talking about something more than that. He is talking about coming to, to a relational intimacy with God. 
This is the key to the Christian life. The Christian life is found in knowing God. Not knowing about God, but knowing God. We could have a, a, a clear understanding of all that has been laid out here in verses 3 through 14, a full, as it were, academic understanding of election and predestination and adoption and atonement and indwelling and sealing, and, and we have explained all of those things. We could have all of that and still not really know God. But we cannot know God without those things either. So it's not an either or, it's a, it's a both and, it's one built from the other. As we know who God really is, as he has revealed himself, Paul's praying that that theology will manifest itself relationally. This is instructive as we approach the Scriptures. We emphasize reading the Bible here at Foothill. We encourage everybody, read your Bible. Read your Bible regularly. Read your Bible Genesis to Revelation. Try to do it every year. Do it year after year after year. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. The reason we encourage it is so that we might come to know God, not to know about God. We emphasize preaching. We preach longer here than many churches. We emphasize preaching because it's through preaching that we come to know God. We are, we are drawn into the presence of God. We pray. And as we pray, we pray that people would come to know God. It's all very, very relational. You think about knowing somebody. If you really know somebody, you, you know it makes them tick. You can't say that you know somebody if you just know a few facts about them. Then you're just acquainted with them. It's when you go beyond the facts to, to begin to... to to become in relationship with that person that you then begin to speak of knowing that person. You know their purposes. You, you know why they do what they, what they do, why they don't do what they do, don't do. What they love, what they hate, what interests them. That's what Paul is speaking of here. He is praying that the Father will, through the Spirit, enable them to, to understand what He has done for them so they might grow in the knowledge of Him. In other words, that their relationship would grow together.
We'll come back to this next week, but let's just quickly look at the three areas that Paul specifically wants them to grow in knowledge. He's praying that God would enable them to grow in knowledge. You see him here in verses 18 and 19, where he says, first, that they will know what is the hope of his calling. In other words, that they might understand the goal of their salvation. They might recognize that they have a future destiny with Christ. The goal of salvation is to be with Jesus, to be with him in unhindered fellowship, with the, with the one who loves us supremely. All right, Paul says, before the world began, God the Father set his electing love upon you, and he, he predestined you to be adopted in union with his son, Jesus Christ, as verses 4 and 5. And yet, so much of life looks opposite to that. So much of life, the appearances are to the contrary of that reality that I am a, I am a son of the king. It doesn't look like that. So Paul is praying here that, that, that this reality that he has spelled out, they would come to a, to a clearer understanding and relational experience of the reality that they have a future destiny set aside for them. And that will impact how they live. If our future is eternal and with the Father, in the presence of the Son, then what's happening in this life pale in comparison. He goes on to say that they might know what is the the, uh, the riches of their glory, of his glory, try it again, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, you see it in verse 18. In other words, that they might know the generosity of their inheritance. We spoke about that for, for a number of weeks, right? We have these seven jewels of our inheritance. And then third, verse 19 that they will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us to believe. In other words, that, that they would be impressed by the greatness of God's power which is available to them. Paul's saying here to them and to us that he's thankful for what God has done in saving them in an evident salvation that shows itself in love. And he is praying that they would come to understand the implications of what he has done. And that it would draw them into an intimate relationship of knowledge with the Father that would settle their hearts for whatever they're facing. This is Paul's priorities in prayer. So if you were to say, can I pray for you, and I were to say, yes, I'd like that. 
I don't need to give you a list of my aches and pains. You can pray for me and know that you are praying according to the will of the Father. When you begin by thanking God for my salvation and asking the Father that through his Spirit, the theology that I know would manifest itself in how I live and interact with both him and others. These are Paul's priorities of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we certainly can and should be instructed by what, what Paul has written here and thus begin with thanksgiving. Our Father, none of us would be here had you not brought us here. None of us would love you had you not first loved us. All of us would be lost in sin had you not set your elective love on us in Christ. And none of us have the resources to even begin to try to pay for our sin. But you sent your own Son who paid the full and complete price. Our Father, all of us are prone to wander and would easily leave the one we love. But your Spirit has residence within us and he has sealed us to the day of redemption. And thus we can thank you that our salvation is of the Lord from planning to execution to final accomplishment. Not just some, but all of us, Father, have nothing in ourselves that is all from you. And Father, I think about my brothers and sisters here and some who are very much hurting. But for all of us, we need to remember these things. And so, Father, please help us. Help us, our Father, to have the truth of, of this theology just readily at hand. Our Father, this is what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves. The end of which is to deepen our intimate relationship with you. Our Father, do your good work this week. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.